and judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Thank you, Sue. It wasn't a great to sing that song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I don't know about you, but I feel that. So why don't we pray as we dig into God's word. Heavenly Father, for each one of us, we know that we are prone to wander. Whether that's because we have not engaged with you or because there's stuff going on in our life. Father, we pray that we would come back to you and recognise that Jesus has died on the cross for us, for our forgiveness. And we thank you that you bind our wandering hearts to you. We pray that you might do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not much of a cricket fan. In fact, pretty much don't like it at all. <laughs> and uh, I never knew about a guy called Ollie Robinson before this week. Ollie Robinson is an English guy, uh, and he made his test debut for the English cricket team this week, only to be suspended for racist tweets that he made around about eight years ago as an 18-year-old. He's the most recent casualty of the call-out culture. Nasser Hussein, I'm, I'm, I'm told that that's how you pronounce his name. Apparently he's the former England captain, respected cricket commentator these days. He, he kind of does this thing where he calls out the behaviour of Ollie but then tempers his statement. This is what he said in a newspaper article. I also think we're probably a bit of a cruel society if we don't realise that an 18-year-old does make mistakes. And he has made mistakes and he's made it horribly wrong and he's fronted up. It does not make it right in any way. I've read the tweets, I've seen the tweets, they're horrible. And, and there's this, so there's this way, weird dynamic in our world at the moment that Nasser Hussein can see where people talk a lot about being free from other people's judgement and yet our culture seems to have this great obsession with finding skeletons in people's closets. And if you've broken the current rules even if they weren't the rules back eight years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago, however long it was, there's no room for forgiveness. Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, has done a bit of work in this area and he attributes a lot of what is going on in our world today to some, some changes that took place uh, on social media at, around about a decade ago. I don't know if you can all remember that, but uh, when Facebook first started, the, the point of Facebook was to say, hey, here's some of my friends and here's some bands that I like. And you'd hook up with your old school friends and say, hey, I haven't seen you in 10 years or whatever it might be. And that was kind of the point of Facebook. 
But today, Facebook encourages and rewards moral outrage. Jonathan Haidt calls it an outrage machine. I don't know if you've ever watched the news being presented on Facebook. Uh, you can watch the ABC News or something like that. I used to do a lot of this during COVID. Okay, so you'd watch the news report, find out what Gladys had to say or find out what uh, Daniel Andrews or Scott Morrison had to say and the angry emoji is just like going off the whole time. Do you notice that? The angry emoji. Everyone's just pressing the angry emoji and it's going off the whole time. People raving and ranting and accusing and judging. Facebook is, and, and social media and, and the media has become a place where you can, people can call you out and you get tried, judged, convicted in the medium of social media before you have any kind of chance to defend yourself. And your past is never forgiven. There's no mercy, no forgiveness, only judgment. And this is the world we're living in. And this passage, I think, is really helpful as we think about the idea of judgment and in particular what it should look like in the church, what are the things that we need to be mindful of as the people, uh, as, as the people of God who are immersed in this call-out culture. How do we kind of do this thing where we keep our hearts in check and monitor our own motives when we see something that we don't like around us? Particularly given that we know the grace mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. Now the context here in the passage that Sue read for us before is that Paul is being judged as a leader by the Corinthians. So remember over the last few chapters uh, what's been happening is uh, Paul's kept on reminding them that what they're saying is I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. There's division among them regarding the leaders and Paul has really written chapters 1 to 4 to rail against their leader's superficial judgment. Sorry, their judgment of their leaders in a superficial way. And, and, and to rail against their willingness not to boast in Christ, but to boast in their leaders, in the leader that they follow. And he's kind of been chipping away at that now for around about three chapters. And this, this boasting in leaders has has happened, and at the same time, there's a judgment that's been taking place upon other leaders. So you boast in your leader and you judge the other leaders, right? Perhaps uh, what's been going on for Paul is they've been judging perhaps his eloquence or his ministry style. If you remember back in chapter 2, he, he kind of shamelessly admits that when he came to Corinth, he didn't come with wisdom or eloquence, but he resolved to know nothing except for Christ crucified. Or, or perhaps... In him they perceive weakness. In 2 Corinthians, he actually quotes the Corinthians as saying about him, 2 Corinthians 10, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So you can see the judgment from the Corinthians, right? And as he defends his ministry, he, he teaches us three big principles that ought to slow us down, ought to slow us down as we judge leaders, firstly, but also as we attempted to judge one another here at church. And the first thing I want us to see here, the first point is, is we are servants of Jesus. Okay? So before we launch into judging one another, we're to remember that the people that we are about to judge they're actually somebody else's servant. So have a look there in verse 1. 
This is what Paul says. It'd be great to have your Bibles open. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, now what's really interesting here is that the word servant in our, in our translations, our English translation, is, is most often translated from a, a, a Greek word that essentially just means table waiter. Okay? And that's what Paul means in Corinth, in Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants or table waiters, right? They're just servants. But here in 1 Corinthians 4, the word servant is actually translated from a slightly different Greek word that essentially means helper or steward. And what are these servants, these helpers, these stewards to steward? Well, Paul says in verse 1, they are entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. So at one level, this is particularly true of the leaders within the church. But this is also true for all Christians, isn't it? We're all servants of Christ. We're all entrusted with the mysteries of God. God has revealed these things to us, the good news of the gospel he has given to us. We are all stewards of this mystery. And so what is important to see here is that we are Jesus' servant. Okay? As we judge one another, we're to think about who it is that we serve. I am first and foremost a servant of Jesus. You are first and foremost a servant of Jesus. Which means that the big thing that matters here is not my judgment of you or your judgment of me, but Jesus' judgment of us. Yeah? Have a look there in verse 2. This is what he goes on to say. He says, Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. See what he's saying? He's saying my audience as I live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not you. It's not the church down the road. It's not the person on social media who wants to call me out. It's not my parents. The judgment that matters is Jesus' judgment. In fact, he goes so far as to say that even if his own conscience is clear, then that's something. But even his own judgment of himself doesn't really matter in the end. It's not a matter of me saying, I'm just going to be true to myself and move on. It's actually Jesus' judgment of me that matters. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we being true to Jesus? Now, at that point, it kind of lays to waste self-righteousness. Yeah? When I'm tempted to judge, it says to me, Sam, your judgment is not what matters here. It may not even be necessary here, Sam, because that person is not my servant. That person is not stewarding my gospel. And so the judgment that ultimately counts is Jesus' judgment. Now, we'll talk in a moment or two about whether there's ever a place for judgment. Uh, but that ought to at least arrest our tendency to jump in and judge people, yeah? I am to remember they belong to Jesus and Jesus' judgment is what counts. And as we think about ourselves, this ought to make us incredibly liberated 
It means that I don't have to be a people pleaser. Now, people pleasing is a very easy trap for us to fall into. So much of what we do and say is all about people pleasing. We're, often, we're always looking for those opportunities to make a positive impression on people around us. Not that making a positive impression is a bad thing, but, but if I want you to like me and, and, and I'll do anything to, do to, to make you like me, then that actually becomes paralysing because everybody wants something different from me. I can't please everyone. So how freeing is it to remember that, that what really matters is what Jesus thinks of me? Whether that's as a pastor or as a husband, a father or a friend, what matters is not public perception of Sam Hilton, but what actually matters is what Jesus thinks of me. We are to live friends with the audience of one. Jesus is our audience in life. Now that also means, I think, that I'm able to take on critique and push back and people pointing out my sin to me. Because all of that, whether it's intended for good or intended to harm me, well, what it means is it's actually an opportunity to grow. What I need to do in those moments is ask myself, well, what does Jesus want of me here? So that's the first principle. The second principle he lays down for us is that some matters are actually hidden from us. Have a look there in verse 5. He says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now again, he's talking about leadership here and reminding them that leaders will not only be judged for their work, as we saw in uh, chapter 3 last week, but also for their motives, for the matters of the heart. So it's actually really possible for something to look impressive on the outside, but unbeknownst to the crowds that might come and listen to that leader and read their books and listen to their podcasts, underneath all of that is perhaps complete and utter moral bankruptcy. It's very possible for that to happen. And sadly, we actually watch these things happen in our world today. We see people's deeds, they're uncovered in this life. And it's devastating to watch. Presumably, many go on without ever, anyone ever knowing their heart's motives. But this is what we do know. God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. God will expose the motives of the heart. And we can actually take great comfort in that, knowing that justice belongs to the Lord and not to us. We don't have to speak up on every issue and call out every bad behaviour because Jesus has it covered. The thing we need to remember in that moment where we're tempted to judge is I can't see people's motives. And it's important that we acknowledge that. What we see are actions and words and behaviours, but we don't actually see into people's hearts. In fact, Paul says, he's like, I don't even know my own heart, right? Have a look there in verse 4. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He doesn't even know his own heart. Now, if that's the case, then we ought to proceed with caution. 
What is all too easy for us to do is to see an action, a word, a behavior, and then attribute a motive. And what you might do at that point after you've attributed a motive, you might call it out. Or maybe you just sit quietly over them in judgment. You ever done that? I know I have lots of times. One of the guys that I work with recently pushed back to me a number of ministry opportunities that I had asked him to take on. Opportunities that were not kind of outside of his jurisdiction. Don't worry, I've talked to him about this. It's all good. They were not unreasonable requests, and he, and he, but he kind of pushed them back to me or to, or to others or through others and said he couldn't do a number of them. So what I did at that point is I assumed a motive for him. I reasoned, well, this is part of his ministry and this is something that I'm passionate about and therefore I know that he's not invested in this. He doesn't care about it. So I sat on that for a few days and resented him. And when I kind of calmed down and got over myself and spoke properly with him about it, it turned out there was a whole bunch of things going on in his life, in his work life, his family life, that, that meant he just couldn't say yes. It would have been foolish for him to say yes. He wouldn't have been able to say, say yes even if he wanted to. And I had assumed no means not invested. The reality was it was just bad timing and he was struggling to kind of keep his head above water as it was. Now, I know you're all sitting out there in judgment over me right now after I've confessed that, but we've all done it, yeah? We've all done this. We do this thing where we see a behaviour, we assume motives. But what Paul reminds us of here is that only God knows our hearts. And he's the one who will reveal what is hidden on the last day. And so we ought to proceed with caution and not assume motives on behalf of other people. You know, Paul's talking about this primarily in a ministry context as they're looking out and assessing leadership. And, and as I was thinking about this, this, as I was thinking about that this week, I reckon the church at large, not particularly our church, I think we're pretty, our, our church is pr- pretty good at this, but I think the broader church actually needs to hear this. Because over the, over the past decade, there have been spectacular ministry fails take place and they're out there for the world to see thanks to social media. And sometimes I watch what's going on and I think, wow, people seem to, here you go, I'm judging them, people seem to really relish the opportunity to judge and to criticise and to write blogs and to comment on these things and to post about it. And it can actually get pretty ugly at times. And to be honest, most people are actually nowhere near enough to the action to be able to make an accurate assessment of what happened let alone judge the motives of the heart. You know, it's easy for people to sit outside our church, maybe inside our church, and make judgments about us as a church. Whether that's a judgment about the leadership or the people of God, it's, it's, it's easy for people to do that, and people do do that. It's easy for us to be guilty of looking at other churches and judging them for the way that they do things or whatever it might be. And it's easy for us also to kind of look sideways at one another and at people's decisions around money and parenting and hobbies and what people wear and where they send their kids to school and how nice their house is and make assumptions at that point about people's hearts. 
where their treasure is and so on. But we can't see motive. And so we ought to proceed with caution. And the wonderful thing is that God does know people's motives. And he will bring them to light on the last day. The third principle I want us to see here is that I only have the wisdom that I've been given or received. Have a look there in verse 6. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now at this point, Paul is urging people, we're going to take a slight aside here for a moment, to just keep their finger in the text. Okay? And this is a great principle for all of us to live by. When you're a growth group, you should have your finger in the text. You should have your heads down in your Bible, looking at the Bible. Here at church, we ought to bring our Bibles and have our finger in the text. Why? Well, if you're going to judge your leaders, Paul's kind of saying here, well, don't go beyond what's written. Make sure you know what the Bible actually say, says. See if, see if what they're saying is true. Go and ask questions and seek understanding and clarity about what the Bible is saying. And, and here's the thing, right? I really do trust the people who teach the Bible around our church, whether that's growth group or up here on the platform or out in kids' church or youth ministry or wherever it might be, they actually do it with all sincerity and right motives. But people get it wrong. I get it wrong. But the only thing that you can know if you don't have your finger in the text, if you're not deep in the word yourself, is whether you like what I say or not. You can't tell if it's true or not unless you're deep in the word yourself. And so his problem with the Corinthians here is, is that they were not judging according to what these leaders, according to whether these leaders were teaching truth or not. They made judgment about all sorts of other things, about things like communication skills, their personality, the way they illustrated the truth. And he's saying the question we actually need to ask is, are they conveying the truth? Are they preaching the good news of Jesus? Are they on about Christ crucified or are they on about something different? Well, that's kind of an aside, an aside that will keep us humble. But what I want to see here is that whatever gifts or wisdom or insight we might possess, and maybe you possess more than other people, we need to be careful how we use them. We need to have a right view of those gifts. See that those gifts and insights are not yours but you've actually received them. They've been given to you from God. Whatever wisdom you have, it's been gifted to you from God. And so Paul says, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Sorry, and if you did receive it, why, did you, why do you boast as though you did not? Friends, can I encourage you not to use your gifts to sit in judgment over one another? to puff yourself up. These gifts are there 
for the good of the church. 1 Peter chapter 4 kind of slams this home. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You see what Peter's saying there? He's saying the big emphasis here is those gifts, those things that you have, that wisdom you have, those, those are received gifts. And so as you use those gifts, you, there needs to be this very real recognition that what you're doing is simply administrating the gifts that God has given to you. And when we do that, friends, it doesn't divide the church like it had in Corinth. It actually builds up Jesus' church and it brings glory to God. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. But maybe the question you're asking is, is this a blanket rule? Are Christians to never judge? Well, come with me to chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul judges and calls out the church to make judgments. Verse 1, this this is what happens. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. (coughs) A little further down, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside expel the wicked person from among you. So what's going on here? Has Paul just completely flip-flopped from the chapter before? Well, the the issue is explicit sexual immorality of a kind that's not even present outside of the church. And the Corinthians, they had 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 actually made a judgment on this kind of behaviour. And they're going, we're proud of this. We're happy about this. And Paul has made a judgment about this as well. And he urges them, this is not on. Put this man out of the fellowship. He wants the Corinthians at this point to be serious about sexual sin and judge it rightly. So so it's not that we don't ever judge as Christians. We must judge. We must judge explicit sin within the church. And so when we sin, our Christian brothers and sisters, they have an obligation to judge us, not condemn us. But they must, out of love, call us back to God, call us into repentance. And such a judgment, that kind of call to repent, is actually a wonderful grace. It's an expression of God's kindness to us, that he would give us, brothers and sisters in Christ, who would call us into repentance. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we only compound our sin 
if we take offence when our brothers and sisters do that with us. Now, see, I know it's easier said than done to, to kind of wear that kind of thing on the chin, to not take offence. I usually do this thing where I just enter into attack mode straight off the back. Someone challenges me, I enter into attack mode, and then I realise that not only have I done wrong in the first place, but I've done wrong again by being such a jerk to my friend who wanted to kind of point something out in my life. Those does no one any favours to be on the defensive. I, I want to be like a friend of mine. A friend of mine, you just kind of even raise the idea that perhaps you might challenge him on something. And he's confessing sin. He's confessing that sin and all the other sins in his life for that month and, and, and at the drop of a hat. And I think the reason he does that is, is because he understands repentance. Repentance is accepting the great truth of the gospel that we are all broken, that we are all sinful wretches, and that Jesus has already paid for that thing that I've done. Jesus has already judged what I am guilty of, but I've not been declared guilty. I've been declared righteous because of the blood of the Lamb. See, the issue in Corinth was there was no repentance. They're proud. And so Paul urges them, to, to take it seriously, put him out of the fellowship. But genuine repentance is seeing our sin and being ready to run to the cross. Take it to Jesus. And so it's not that we don't ever judge. We must call out sin. We must love each other in that way. But what we mustn't judge is the motives of the heart. We mustn't judge what is hidden based on decisions or words or perspectives or personality that might concern us if those things are not explicitly sinful. So if I'm going to do it, how do I do it well? How do I challenge someone? Well, it's hard work. So let me give you a few things to think about. The first is, if in doubt, wait. If you suspect but don't know, just wait. Don't talk to everybody else about it. Just wait. And observe and spend time with that person, if they're a friend, if they're in your growth group, whatever it might be. And just wait. Assume that your wisdom is somewhat limited. Assume that you don't know all of the things. And so be slow to speak. Second, when we challenge people on sin, we ought to examine our own hearts first. Ask yourself the question, what is my motive here? Why am I doing this? You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, as, as brutal as it kind of feels and sounds as you, you hear the situation going on in Corinth there and Paul expelling this man from the church, Paul does it. Why? Well, he does it so that he might be saved on the last day. That's what it says there in the text. He only wants good for this fellow on the last day. And at, the, and at the same time, he knows just how serious sin is. But, but as you kind of keep reading on in Corinthians and you get to chapter uh, to 2 Corinthians, what you see is that Paul is actually arguing for this fellow to be brought back into the fellowship. See, he only wants good for him. So we have to ask ourselves, what, if it, what is our motive here? We don't call out sin or anything else to replicate the call-out culture in our world, to shame people, 
but we do it out of love. We do it because it's deadly. And if it goes unchecked, it will kill us. It will kill individuals in the church. Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. But it can also kill churches too. Cultural sin within a church. That is often one of the big reasons why people walk away from Jesus. So it's important that we do it, but we do it out of love. We need to check our motives, examine our hearts. Third, as we do this, we ought to be willing to carry somebody else's load. This is what it says in in Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There should be a slide for this. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens in this way. You will fulfill the law of Christ. So so the sense of this passage in Galatians chapter 6 is is that if someone is caught in sin, then it's your burden just as much as their burden. And so as as you challenge them, you want to enter into that with them. And you want to help them and enable them to deal with it. You want to enable them to do whatever is necessary for them to be able to move through that sin that they are particularly caught in. And you know, I, I really admire the, the men and women who I work with in this area. Many of you I admire as I watch you do this with one another. There are people in our church who are just constantly entering into carrying the burdens of men and women in our church. They have this kind of enormous capacity for it. I'm actually pretty bad at it. But, it, but it's remarkable to watch others do it. But they cannot do it on their own. They need me, they need you. The staff and the growth group leaders, they can't do it on their own. Church is, is actually too big for them to kind of take on everyone's wrestle with sin personally. We need to do this as a church. We need to love one another and care for one another and get aside one another and pray for one another and with one another and be Galatians 6 type of people. And I pray that we would be that type of people. Fourth thing I want to say is know that this is important because grace is not cheap. The death of Jesus deals with every and any sin, yeah? If we come to him in repentance and faith, the death of Jesus deals with every and any sin. But we ought to remember that grace is not cheap. It actually costs the blood of Jesus. Our forgiveness and our freedom, it meant that God's one and only son had to die. But he did. He did that for us. And this, friends, is what our world does not get. Ollie Robinson gets no forgiveness from our world. On social media, you will get no forgiveness, only judgment. Why? Because the world does not know Jesus. They have not yet been confronted with their own sin and wrongdoing before the holy God of the universe. And they have not yet looked at the cross, the place where our Saviour bled and died and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
They haven't realised, friends, that judgment doesn't flow from the cross, but forgiveness does. How astounding is that? How countercultural are Jesus' words as he hangs on the cross? When he looks at those who have beaten him and mocked him and crucified him and driven nails through his hands and his feet and, and, and done all of that when he didn't even deserve it. And what does he do? He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If only our world knew. What a difference that would make in our world today. What a difference it would make to, regarding the way that people interact with one another in our world today. If only we could remember this as Christians, what a different place church would be. Because if we get this right, then if I'm a believer and you approach me about my sin, then the thing that you need to know is Jesus has already paid for that sin that you're approaching me about. Now that doesn't mean you don't do it. I need to live a life that's worthy of the, the calling that I've received from God. But it does mean moral outrage matters very little in the scheme of things. And so you do it out of love. If only I could keep that in mind when I am tempted to judge and when I'm tempted when, and when I'm being rebu rebuked by people. What a difference that would make if I could remember that forgiveness flows from the cross, not judgment. Friends, Jesus is my audience in life. He's the one I live for. And we are accountable to him. Why don't we pray and give thanks for our Saviour? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the radical words that Jesus utters on the cross. We thank you that when he looks at those who have beaten him and mocked him and crucified him unfairly, that he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, we pray for our world, our friends, our family. We pray that they would see Jesus, that they would see and understand and know forgiveness through him. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember this and to be humble as people approach us about sin and to be slow to judge others. We thank you so much, Father, that you are about grace and mercy and we pray that we would be a people who reflect that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.